Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin, and our producer, Dan. And Justin is fresh from the show. It Actually, I don't even know what it's called, but it's in Vancouver, one of my favorite cities. You did it last year for me. Oh, this was the proxy show I did for you. Yeah, anime... Revolution. Revolution. Anime Revo. Yes. That's a good name for a show. Anime yeah. show. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like fun. Yeah. Yeah. Anime Revolution is a, they're a great company. Um, they also, they are really on top of their branding. Every single volunteer and employee is wearing like a full printed shirt with their mascot anime girl across it and the logo. And then like tons of the fans also buy a slightly different version of the shirt. So it's like almost like you're surrounded by staff the entire time it looks like it. <laughs> now, doesn't that create this? I mean, I know as an attendee of shows, when I feel that everybody on the show team is representing, it feels like it's well organized. Even, yeah. even if it's not, it feels there's that presentation. As soon as they have that professional shirt on, you, yeah. you give them a bit more respect than if it's just a, a guy just, with a... A, a lanyard. Yeah. Free lanyards. Sorry. Free lanyards. Were they giving away free lanyards at this one? There's no, no free lanyards. Man. I don't think that would have flown at a smaller show. I don't think you can get really get away with carnival barking. Nah. We tiny did shows. some research into free lanyards, mm. into like creating lanyards to give away for free. If someone out there listening to this, dear listener, has a good hookup for free lanyards, it's much more cost prohibitive than we... Initially. We're talking about just the lanyard part of it, just not the, not the well, tag on the A custom printed lanyard. Okay. So like a... You can get cheap... Generic ones. Yeah. Fine. But if we wanted a Super Pulp Science lanyard, say, to give to every attendee of, say, a local pop culture science fiction fan show, like maybe, you know, FanQuest, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's How much were really? we, we were looking at? Like, even in the 1,000 to 2,000, like, region, it was still like a dollar or more a lanyard. Huh. Yeah. Inter- interesting. Cost per unit, very high yeah. for that. So must be worth it for that one woman who is giving away free lanyards. No, but I also compare. Um, so I compare my beginnings in comics, the ability, the reach I had, and the knowledge I had, and knowing what to ask for and with whom. Um, the pricing I got for my early stage of investigating making books mm. is a lot different than what I know to do now. So perhaps we're just at that early stage <laughs> yeah. of our lanyard manufacturing journey. You guys need to put a couple of years of lanyard making yeah, into, like, yeah. you know, we need to know how to pivot and how to, and how to maneuver in the, in the deep sea of lanyard manufacturing. We got you off track, Justin. You were talking about this awesome con you're at. I yeah, started, I yeah. took, I took, oh, a, anime a, revolution. I took so, us on a lanyard tangent. Yeah. So a couple mm. of things went on there that you're that was uh, new to you, wasn't it? Like you um, had a, I uh, wanted to bring up there was uh, well, there's two things that kind of like I wanted to just ask you about if oh, you've had it happen I'm as ready. well and and how you feel about it. I had two different people come up that were after something incredibly specific and then gave me sass when I didn't have it. Like, oh. ran up to the booth and said, do you have, I can't even remember the name of the anime, but this anime, it just came out, I'm looking for artwork for it. And I'm like, no, I haven't heard of it, don't have anything. 
and then they got like grumpy about it. Oh, like so it went straight to entitlement. And then another person <laughs> wanted some like obscure like show from the eighties. I didn't have a sh- anything on that, and again, like got like, oh, why not? And I'm like, well, I've got a hundred <laughs> other designs. I'm sorry. You got defensive. I, yeah, like I'm working hard. I promise, but I'm not gonna do everything that is under the sun. Now, do you pass them a? submissions or not submissions a commissions card like say hey i do commissions if you really want that but what if i don't like it but you automate and here's another side i immediately know the answer anyone who's going to treat you like that immediately is not someone you want to correspond with in that, commission line and also i think like in the early days every once in a while if more th- that was the thing it, both these people were asking for something very obscure that i'd never heard of and i don't think I had much interest in checking out. When people would keep bringing up like the same video game or the same show, it goes on my list. And the more I hear about it, the higher up the list it goes until I finally check it out. And if I like it, I'll do something. Like if I hear one more person, Justin started, What Justin was the one that did it, but I've heard now at every show probably 20 times when we start talking about like animated films that you should see. If I see another recommendation for sort of the stranger, I'm going to lose it. I haven't seen the film, film. but it's like one of those things where like so many people in your orbit are like, well, if you like all this, you'll love that. You should probably go check it out. And there probably is something of merit there. And that's how I feel about that. But if someone comes to me and like, for example, what immediately came to mind when you told this story was somebody that was really incensed that I didn't have any Halloween. Like, I had not done a poster for Halloween because I do a lot of it old posters. It does make a posters. bit of sense for you and your it's style. Yeah. Yeah. Given, yeah. given your connection to John Carpenter, I would say that's... Uh, yeah, and yeah. I want to do one. But then I was like, yeah, I'm really thinking of doing... I have a few. I've sketched out a few mm-hmm. Mike Myers compositions. I can't... I'm trying to find some way in my style to do it that isn't derivative of everybody else's composition. And then they were like, no, no, no. I don't want Michael Miles. I want Halloween 2. What? And so they admitted that, like, the whole conversation was them admitting how obscure that movie is in your love of a particular movie franchise. It's the one, it's the one-off that's the weirdest. So I'm not super familiar. Don't they get rid of Michael Myers in the second one? Sort of and like they the try s- to... He was trying to do a universe thing. He yeah. just wanted, like, the Halloween the universe. I thought like, John Carpenter only did the first one. So the setup for Halloween 2 is that someone's watching Halloween 1 on TV during the events of Halloween 2. It's, oh. like, a le- it's like a multiverse almost. And there's no Michael Myers in it. It's just, like, That's right, yeah. killers at Halloween. He wanted to do, or whoever was writing it, wanted to do kind of like, it was almost like a series. Like, the Halloween movies would each be different would every time. Would each be different every oh, time. Oh, but the only connection is that it all always happened at Halloween. That's right. Yeah. And okay. so the, the Halloween 2 was, like, about a, I forget, like, a product that came alive when it would be transmit, like a certain show would play on Halloween night, which would then It would activate- possess you or something. Yeah, it would possess the dolls or the people or the kids or something. Kids? Wasn't it kids? Yeah, maybe like, it's kids. Yeah. yeah, probably kids. Like, tune in Halloween and then- I've never seen this movie. Yeah. I never saw Halloween 2. See? Again, a little now, obscure. If you're like into cool B-level horror movies, and I am- I am too. I don't yeah, know why I haven't seen it. Super fun to watch. But when someone comes up to you at a show- thinking that you might have something and then you don't but then they don't disengage politely they instead double down and like why not oh when are you gonna have it when are you coming back when you come back will you have it i don't know who these people are or why this happens but it does happen no what you're describing to me sounds a lot like a commission 
Yeah. You, if you want an artist to create something specific for you, then you hire them to do that and you pay them to do that. That's called commission. It's much more expensive than just. They only want to pay twenty dollars well, for their one it, thing. <laughs> yeah. And if you did do that, if you went home, made that Halloween two print, and brought it back, nobody's going to buy it the except more for I'm that talking one about guy. It, the more I want to make one now, because <laughs> I can see a composition of like a nine panel grid and each of the panels is a fuzzy TV with the image that is projecting that. And then a kid kind of like poltergeist style, the kid in front of each of those TVs. And then the whole thing is in a silhouette of the Michael Myers house. Oh my gosh. I've but got already, it. I'm not making it. If you're listening yeah. <laughs> and you want that, I'm not making it. It's only for me. Well, no, if you, if we get enough response from people, if we get enough people saying they want it, would you make it? <sighs> Why don't you rise up, mister? Nobody reads. Well, then you got nothing to worry about. Now, come on. Let's have a truce. What, what makes it worth it to you to to do a piece? I know you guys do your pieces. It's based on inspiration. You're artists. You're inspired to create a piece of art uh, based on whatever. But for you, how, when do you cross that line? How many prints do you need to sell to make that a, a worth profitable? Okay, there's two kinds of profit margins here that I think, maybe even three, that you should be considering if you're getting this. Number one, there's all the hard costs. Right, right? printing. And, but printing isn't the hard cost. Printing prints is actually the least expensive part of turning a print into profitability. Traveling to a show is where the actual hard costs are. Okay. Right? Because you have to travel there, you have to pay for your table, you have to fly to get there, you have to um, eat while you're there, you have to sleep while you're there, all of those things cost money, let's, all that gets folded in. Let's dial it down and say it's just your local show. You're just doing only your local convention, so you still have you to pay- You don't have any of those costs. For the first yeah. time? Yeah, yeah, let's just say $200 for your table. Yeah. Um, and let's just go with that model, because a lot of people are still starting out and not okay, flying to shows. You sh cannot show up with just one print. You got to build a bit of portfolio. You have to have a portfolio. Yeah. We may have talked about this before, but sure. not this, in this way. Not this in this depth, I don't yeah. think. So my advice, having seen it work for some people and not work for others, and myself do some smaller shows and some bigger shows, you should have between five and ten prints that all share a visual style, right? You can have other things in the portfolio that are very different. I have a big, a robust portfolio that is off, in a way. Um, Touches the edge of the brands, if you will. You've right? been from, building it for what, 15 years? Yeah, right, so it's big, it's wide. But you should have five or ten pieces that all share the right kind of theme, have similar color palettes so they pair nicely together. Mm, right? I, I think I disagree, disagree when you're starting. I think you should shotgun it and try a whole bunch of different things because you have no idea what about you as an artist is going to stick with people. Okay, so we have two paradigms. We'll run yeah. them both out. So in the first one, you have something that matches and you have five or 10 pieces. The dollars and cents of it, even if they're different styles, is that each of those pieces is at least a day of work to make. If you're fast, if you're slow in coming up with your composition, it could be three to five days that it takes you to make, to physically produce the art of that piece, right? So now you have, say, three days times... 10 pieces, so that's 30 days and How many copies work. of each piece do you print? We're not even there yet. Okay. We're just into the labor. You're asking about what it, what it takes. Yeah, that's right. That's right? right. You can't just show up with some papers. You need to have made the things that are on those papers. Right. So if you've got 30 days of solid work and you're doing it as a side hustle, right? Yeah. If you're doing it as a side hustle, well, that's 30 days folded into your 40-hour work week of stuff you're already doing if you have a full-time job, right? Yeah. So there's this huge body of time. Now, during that time, you're going to think about 
the pieces themselves. You'll make four or five, and then you'll make two or three that are way better than the first, and you'll regret the first ones, but don't throw those away. They're in your portfolio. Don't start from scratch. Don't stand, you almost, count the start of- It's not a bad thing to have some weak pieces yeah. among your strong pieces. It, also, it's just your opinion, yeah, right? Right, someone yeah. might love that. And, and that that's happens where sometimes. I was getting with the shotgun thing, especially when I was starting out. I still today, I you know, I have a vague grasp on what's going to hit and what won't. Um, but when I was starting out, I was playing around with styles in Photoshop. I was doing a little bit of vector work, but the shattered vector thing kind of came from just experimenting around. And I thought, okay, this is kind of cool. Bring it to a show, and that style really caught on. But I had no idea. Yeah, while the first I was thing I ever it. bought from you before I knew you was that Transformers was piece the Optimus that was very J. Lee inspired, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ellen? Uh, no, oh, okay. much, that's a, well, that's, much older. Yeah, that's okay. closer to present day, that work there. Um, it's funny because we're talking about things we're pointing to and can see. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> while, while we're talking about things that we that the listener can't see, uh, Dr. Jonathan Ball has a question on this topic he wants to Oh, he's in. in the studio right now working on some work of his own. I've actually, sorry, I've actually been meaning to ask you guys this question. I keep forgetting. But for a guy like me who mostly is doing books, if I was going to start going to shows, how many books do you think I should have? Okay, At what well, point this, is it kind is of great. for an author to become yeah. worth doing it? Well, we have answers no. for that. And many of these answers we've stolen from Sam. So this is, it's good. Sam, if you're listening, we miss you. But what, let's stay on you, topic. You do, okay. Let's Go stay ahead. on topic. So you got 30 days of work. Now you've got a bunch of prints. You shouldn't print more than you can reasonably sell at one show. But you shouldn't do just one show. You should book three shows. Okay. Because that way you don't have the bitter disappointment when one or two of those prints sells, but not all of them. And you think, oh, I'm a failure because only these two of these 10 things I did were worthwhile. Because you haven't got an actual representation of what people like because you haven't been around enough people, right? We tend to use a rule of thumb that the first piece, you tend to print 20 of them, right, to see if there's any, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Gription is the word my wife would use, where someone like sees it and then wants it and would walk away with it for a local small show. Print 20. That way, if you have 10 pieces, right, you got 200 pieces of art now, that's a pretty robust okay, okay. back catalog. And I think we both shot ourselves in the foot a little bit finishing a piece, being incredibly happy and proud about it, and then going overboard is like printing a hundred of these because it's going to be the next big seller. Oh, and I then nobody so looks times. twice at it. I did that so many times where I was like, this is the one. This oh my gosh, it. I'm not even going to bother with this 20 thing. I'm going to print 60 of these right yeah. away. But there's a way for you to make money from that later on if it doesn't hit. Although you have a bunch of prints now that you're not So selling. the way you make money for it is people will never get used to a deal like a discount, but they'll always, or rather they'll always get used to a discount, but they'll never get used to something that's free. People always love a free thing. Right. So if you have a lot of extra stock doing two for ones and building that stock into the portfolio, it can be a good way to move it where everybody is getting added value. You get the added value of seeing it go to a good home. They get the added value of a free piece of art. Right. You don't have to throw it away or recycle it, which is like added value right there. <laughs> its problems have been corrected. We have replaced Every circuit. Its technology has been perfected. 
I had a um, a bit of a mishap when I when I came to Vancouver. I went and picked up my printing at Over the Edge Printing in Vancouver. Um, so shout, shout out, to, out Sage. To, to Sage because he's one of our favorite printers. If you're in Vancouver doing anything downtown, Over the Edge. That's right. And he did not awesome. pay for that sponsorship. This is just no. our unabashed <laughs> appreciation for how often. He's okay. Had well, our back. he did pay for it a little bit. Um, oh. Because he helped me out so much, oh, okay. and I just want to repay the favor. Um, I sent, of all the files I sent, one of my files, I accidentally sent the poster file instead of a 12 by 18 file. So when you print that on 12 by 18 paper, it basically just crops out the middle of the poster. <laughs> so it was the Kshatriya uh, mobile suit. How did uh, it look? From Gundam Unicorn. It looked kind of cool. It looked like just a zoom in shot. But it's not how the print is supposed to look. So I had 40 of these, and because it's a, a fairly popular print, and so I... I found it as soon as I unpacked my print, so I was able to go back and they were able to reprint it right away because they're awesome. Um, but I had 40 of these prints that I couldn't really sell or use. Right. So I put it kind of on the side of my table so it was a little bit hidden, so it wasn't like front and center, with a sign saying, free, um, free for a follow. Nice. So people who came up was like, oh, this is free. I'm like, yeah, you just have to follow me on Instagram or Facebook. And so they just immediately do it on the phone, show it to me, and then walk away happy with their print. Well, that's a neat way to get rid of old stock or misprints where everyone... And I mean, they might unfollow you, but... The, I, and they might, but... The real thing, what you're... But okay. they thought it was funny. It was like a bit of a... It's a little exchange, but there's another side of it too. It hurts to throw away a stack of fresh printing I bet it hurts and you can recycle it sure and what we do often is we you know it's only printed on one side so we keep stacks of that stuff and we use it as our note paper and I crop it for my kids to do their homework on and like we we try to be as environmentally conscious with the old overstock as we can but it's like a bullet in the heart of the planet every time we misprint something <laughs> and so I think I'm going to use the same trick I've got a couple of shows coming up in September that we're driving to and I'd like to bring some dead stock that hasn't moved in a long time along just for this purpose right yeah. so yeah. coming back around to your original question what you should do is you should have a couple of you know five to ten pieces um justin would suggest that it can be a shotgun variety i would suggest you want to curate it a little bit more closely um but you don't know when you're starting yeah. you kind of have to feel the and waters this is yeah. this go with your gut on yeah. picking which of us you think is right we both you know. Now, how does this apply to Jonathan's question so, about the, the books? So when we come around to books, how many titles do you have? How many titles do you have? Yeah. John says he's got seven titles. Are you flying or are you driving? I mean, I guess, let's say, like Justin's saying, we're just going to try local shows. Local shows. Local shows. Yeah. Well, bring everything. Yeah. Suggestion for local shows, especially with books, there is something to do with, like, a consumer's brain pattern when they see a stack of books 10 feet high. Yeah. <laughs> something goes like there must be something to this book. That's right. Versus if you just have what like one of each seven books like displayed nicely and the other booth has stacks and stacks and stacks yeah. behind those books, something says like he must know something I don't and I need to get one of these books. See Sam or Claire C. Marshall's table displays yeah. for examples of that. They do a great job. They, they do a super good. And I would do that when I first came out with the Imagination Manifesto. I would, you know, I would maybe sell 25, 30 at a show, right? An early show. And, but I would bring a stack of 100 or more to be the display itself. So I'm like, how do I get people interested in this book? 
more of those books. So I'd make these columns and these stacks and then I'd use those as shelves to display the books that are for browsing and for sale. And it just, it, it creates this repeated, I mean, if you have a stack uh, 25 high of a graphic novel, now the spine is this repetition of the name of the book right there in people's faces, right? And they get a sense of it. And it lifts it up into the eye line. It does all that stuff. Fake now, it till you make it is very much true in our, at least on the show floor. Sure, yeah. But yeah. there's another side of it too. Like you made it and you love it and you have them, so use them. But there is a there is a, an upfront investment that well, we haven't necessarily yeah. talked about where, where you have to, if you've never done a show before and you want to get in there, you're going to have to put a, probably a couple thousand dollars into, we into usually pay use, for um, shows, prints. That we, kind of stuff? we usually use a ballpark, like an earmark of around two grand. It costs. That's to... at our level, though. There's, yeah. yeah, when you're starting out your first table, you shouldn't be looking. I mean, at honestly, if, if you're doing a show like FanQuest, we only charge. Uh, if you get into the early birds uh, side, it's a hundred dollars a table. Uh, we let people split tables, single tables. We let people right. split. We don't let people split double tables because it's just dumb. <laughs> if people saying, "Can I pay?" Because we charge less for double table, right? Uh, right? And then and, split it. But it's <laughs> like, what are you doing? You're just get, trying to get a discount on a table. So yeah. anyway, we do let. But but if it's a hundred dollars, you split that with a friend. That's only fifty dollars for a table at FanQuest for a okay, weekend. Okay, so then let's look at really the good. hard cost there. So if you're doing a local show and you can get into there uh, for fifty dollars at your table and you print 10 of 10 prints you got 100 prints right you're likely to sell out of something the best seller and that'll hurt because if you had more of them you would and have you'll sold have no idea what but the best seller is going to be but you use have that no as way a, to know you use that as a marketing opportunity to say i'm yeah. sorry i'm sold out right now here's my card get in touch with me and That's i'll right. have one for you next week or something like that and you know we could and i mean this is the first time it ever occurred to me but you could use what justin just figured out at anime revo right they seem really interested you don't have any listen Follow me and you'll, you can have one for free. Like if it's stock, you don't know if you're going to move anyway. There's an investment opportunity. Yeah. For the cost of a print, you have a way for someone to follow up immediately. It's like building an email list. Yes. You know, but a little less. In yeah. Getting face. to hard cost for your very first show when you're just starting to figure this all out. I think under four hundred dollars should be what okay. you're looking at. Yeah. Um, and then you know that first show is going to teach you so much about what you need to change. And then we can start talking about banners and back display and, and table arrangements. But for your first show, you probably need to yeah. just get your prints. And here's a list of things that you should have that normally cost money that you can probably borrow. Someone in your family who travels a lot has a couple of hard shell suitcases. They're expensive. They're mm -hmm. like $200, $300 mm. a piece. But they're only using them twice a year. So you can borrow it for a show. Why? Because they've got four wheels. You can pack it full of heavy stuff, and then when you're trying to get everything to the table that first time and you're flustered, it's all packed into two cubes that are walking beside you. You can even carry your coffee at the same time. Wow. Right? This is a pro tip that I didn't learn until like a year and a half in. I would just haul everything in boxes, and I would haul it and haul it and haul it, and then one day I was like, wait, they invented boxes with wheels called suitcases, <laughs> right? Um, so this is something that you can do immediately. Tablecloth you can borrow, right? Yep. Make it, you know, see Claire C. Marshall for um, the uh, her fairy ink press. Everything is branded. You know, she has a certain color that she picked, a certain purple. She tries to make everything match or at least close to it. Actually, back up. Something I wish I had done. I don't think I really had the opportunity to do this when I started because conventions were so far apart and in between. Um, but attend a show. 
and make notes and figure out what other people are go doing. Go to one for fun. Go yeah. to one for fun and mm-hmm. make it a research. So that's trip. the long game. Yeah, this yeah. is not a get rich quick scheme. If you're trying to get rich quick off of comic book land, you're not gonna. It's not gonna work, right? There are some people who get rich quick at Comic Con, but usually it's a surprise to them too, mm-hmm. right? Um, wow, people really liked this. I couldn't believe it, so I made more of them, and I kept making more of what sold. But there's no way to know, right? So if you're going to a show and you're bringing books, let's say you're an author and you have five or six titles or you only have one title, bring as many of them as you can to the local show. And when people are like, wow, do you expect to sell all these? You say, no, but I'm new. I can't afford a big display. I put all my love and effort into this book, so I brought lots of them to show you how much I love it. You should tell the story of the Toronto book fair, that woman who had published her very first book and her husband did trade shows for a living. Yeah. He did like, <laughs> I yeah. can imagine that would have been awesome. Yeah. yeah. He was a, I don't remember the name of the book. It had a weird title, but I it do remember a the young display. adult fantasy yeah. novel, her very first published book ever, ever. And it was self-published, self-published. And they had a bigger display than scholastic by far. And it went all the way to the roof of the convention center. Like it was insane. And you walked into it and it was like a fairy wonderland kind of like. It was an interactive like booth that you walked into and experienced. It was all woodland themed and they had like, it was, there's so much stuff in there. And then you came out into the gift shop, like you walked through it, like an installation. Then you popped out and oh, here was a book and the book was only $15 or something. It was like cheap. You almost just did it. Just because you got to have this other experience. And you you're kind tell of, us how many books, like th- they sold thousands of books yeah. at this event. But he also, we were chatting with him. He does, he worked in the robotics industry. Yeah. So he was explaining to us, we do big shows where you spend tens of thousands of dollars on your booth and you're only hoping for one client wow right you need that one specific person to come and say yes this is the right thing by the way i need a million and a half units of this widget right right and it's going to make your entire year right so he had a different mentality so that was the mentality he approached this book expo with having never done a book expo but he just said listen if we're going to go and do it my company will pay for my wife's book display or whatever, right? <laughs> so now the first thing people who are listening to this are probably going to roll their eyes and say, like, well, I don't have a rich anyone. Yeah, it's winning the lottery, that situation. But. Yeah, you're right. You don't. So don't worry about it, right? Comparing yourself to that person is foolish, right? You might say, like, it's not fair or, you know, why would she sell so many copies of the book? My book is just as good. Just recognize that people's attention was grabbed by this thing and that's fine. You're not in it to get rich quick. It costs them more to have that booth than they will make back ever from even a thousand copies of those books, right? So just do it your own way. You may not be big, but you're small, as Stuart McLean says. Ladies and gentlemen, all guests are encouraged to request the host or hostess of their choice. What kind of expectations should somebody have going into this for the first time? I often hear, I remember the first year of FanQuest, I was, I'd go around talking to vendors and ask them how they did and, and that kind of stuff. And one thing I heard often was, oh, I made my table. So and, yeah, this, that's it, usually expectations for the first time. Which means time that you made you. enough money to cover the cost of your table. The cost, cover the cost so of being there. That, but that's, to be honest, now I realize that that's not even really breaking even because... No, because you're time in. Time in and cost of printing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, like there's other, stuff, other yeah. stuff. So, so that fe- feels like a good thing, but I realize now that it's not necessarily a good As thing. As a short-term making money project, writing and creating your own IP 
or even doing fan art of someone else's is not a way to make a living. Right. As a long game, there's a way to construct a living for it. If you say, I'm going to spend the next three years building this up as a business, guess what? Any business that you try to build up over three years can succeed with enough work, time, and effort. The other thing I said, remember I said at the beginning of this podcast, there are different costs associated, right? One of the other costs is that your time and your energy and your interest are all rolled up into doing a thing that is going to fire you up. This entire conversation started when you said, how do you know what print to do? How do you guys Mm -hmm. pick? How do you do that? If I'm not interested in doing the artwork and that becomes a grind, and then going to the show and traveling is a grind, and then being at a 40-hour, three-day show is a grind, well, now you might as well have a cubicle job anyway because your life sucks. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And honestly, I, I feel that, uh, and just, this is just the impression I get from, from other artists and vendors I've spoken to at cons, and not just VanQuest, is that as, as long as, if they make their table and they're having fun during the con, they're there partially to sell prints, but also to to gather with other like-minded individuals and talk about nerdy things and have fun. That's part of the uh, fun of a convention. Then they're okay with that as well. They're, they're basically getting to experience a convention and possibly make some money as well. So the, yeah, making money at your first couple of shows is like the bonus. What the real thing that you're getting from the show, and you and I have both experienced this, Justin, is that when you're behind a table, you're part of that exclusive group of people who are behind tables who have a different vocabulary, a different set of body language, and different access to the after parties than everybody else. After parties. That's something i got to get going on, Ben. This is the after parties. And it's not because there's like some exclusive invite list, but simply because word travels around the show floor, vendor to vendor, uh, creator to creator, that things are happening after. And because just like in any endeavor where people suffer together, right the band of brothership and sisterhood forms and you go out together right and Mm -hmm. if you're having a good show or a bad show but you're in a pretty good mental space well you're meeting other people of like minds of like goals of like desires and they might be a publisher they might be an artistic director we lots of people we that i met at the uh, vancouver fan expo show the first year that we were hanging out with turned out to be um, like animation leads in the Ninja Turtles show, who someone who's now like running the Shira cartoon, like all these people whose side hustle is comics, but their main job is a is a world that a lot of people wish they knew more about or could be a part of or whatever. And you have to be careful because it is a little bit great and powerful laws, right? Sometimes you'd rather only know about the edifice. You'd rather know that the Emerald City was magical than know that it's just an old guy behind a curtain. Right. So if you can handle pulling back the curtain, right, and meeting some of your meeting some of your idols and realizing that they're jerks, right, (laughs) then maybe there's a place on the other side of the table for you. And that's what you're paying for. Yeah. Okay. Right. So there's that side of it. And then, you know, you stretch that out over five or six years. Like when I was teaching full time and doing five or eight shows a year at the same time, it started as two and then it was five and then it was close to 10 and I was still having a full time job. Um, you start to build up um, knowledge of what the best shows are, knowledge of what the actual industry are, knowledge of the best printing, knowledge of the best shipping. You build it up slowly. If you're wanting to start where we are now, I don't know how to tell you that. Be rich. 
Yeah, have a right. have a husband who works in uh, in in robotics yeah. that has investors' <laughs> money to spend on your book display. Like, and you can absolutely we see it. People who cut the line with their checkbook, and fine, right? Don't apologize. I don't think those people should have to apologize for their accomplishments either, right? Any more than I have to apologize for not having a million dollars to throw at people. Yeah. Right? You just start where you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Bring all the books you got and all the heart you got. And join the fight. Get in there. Awesome. What else? Uh, you have, what do you have coming up? What's your, what are your shows coming up? Uh, Fan Expo Toronto is right around the corner. Yes. Which is always a very big one. And I'm on the knife edge of maybe not attending. I was going to ask. Yeah. I have, um, uh, I just signed, well, I signed two contracts recently, one for a graphic novel and one for- <laughs> I saw your post on Instagram where you like picture of you signing this. Yeah, they took a picture of me signing the actual <laughs> contract for this book contract. And so suddenly I have a whole bunch of deliverables that are, rather than being made of dream smoke, are like, do it. And here's the, here's the schedule in which we need stuff. And so when you're working on a book, when you're just starting out, your first book, you don't have any of the considerations beyond writing the book. Just write that book and hope you can, someone will give a shit. When you're a little bit further along, some of the considerations are how will you market it? Can you um, write these uh, blog posts or these guest blogs? Or can you do some of this marketing? Can we line up these sorts of uh, interviews? Can you do some guest spots on some people's podcasts? And like, there's like a media, there's a bit of, it's small, right? compared to other big media launches, but it does take a fair amount of your time. And the only place I have I can scoop time from is my family, and I, it's either family or shows right now. So I can scoop time away from the shows, which does hurt my bottom line, but it keeps my sanity and my creativity <laughs> and my relationship with my family intact. So right now I'm looking at having to drop a few shows in order to meet my deadlines um, and still be a nice person. I could do it all, but then I would be a very unpleasant person to be around when I wasn't, um, quote unquote, on. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one of the things. It may be okay if the feedback I get back in the next like three days is solid. Then I might be able to do it. And I've been talking to the people at Fan Expo, and uh, they're kind of, well, we'll hold this for you, but not for very long. Right. Well, they scenario. can. Right. Yeah. They so, need to fill that spot. I understand that totally, and they understand where I'm at. They would probably have a waiting list of people waiting to get in there, though. They do, yeah. Yeah, They do. Cool. That's that's probably the biggest show in Canada. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's huge, and it just lands at an inopportune time. Because for me, the other how the sausage gets made part is that it is the weekend before school starts. Ah, yes. Right? And I have... Justin has no kids at school age, but I have two kids at school age. So the the build-up and the anxieties related to school and the, you know, pressures to get everything just so and when, you know... uh, Get them back into normal sleeping schedules. Yeah, and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, You mean they can't stay up till 11 o'clock? Yeah, hats (laughs) off to every parent that's doing that by themselves. Um... I feel very fortunate that I have a partner that helps me do that kind of stuff. And so we're trying to figure it all out. And so in order to make that partnership kind of semi-work, I'm trying to balance uh, some of that showtime. Yeah, yeah. Which makes is sense. Uh, which, is, uh, which is a hard thing to do. Um, but it is, uh, I'll predicate this by saying my wife is going away for the weekend by herself while well, with some friends. And so this weekend coming up, 
which everyone else would be like, oh, great. I now know that I can work around the clock on that weekend. Like the kids will go to bed at eight o'clock and I'll go to bed at 2 a.m. And I'll, <laughs> from eight o'clock to 2 a.m. I'm going to do so much work. It's so confusing, you know? I thought maybe later on we could get together. You could sort of help me out. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not possible. One exciting thing that's going on for me is that Great Plains Publishing accepted my submission for Automatic Age, which is a five book series that I pitched them. I wrote the first one, I sent it in, um, and gave a brief outline for what I planned for the other four books. Uh, the second one I've already started, uh, but they accepted to publish it. Did and you have this planned or did you pull a Sam and just said, oh yeah, I've got four more books planned? So what I did was, okay, so it's interesting. So. Justin is referencing a previous podcast where uh, Samantha Biko was in her publishing meeting and they said, oh, we love this book. Are there any more? And she immediately made up the titles for the two other books oh, in yes, the series. Oh, yes, it's a trilogy. It's a and trilogy. Here, the other yeah, here they are. I would happily sign for a trilogy <laughs> if you can do it. Um, so Pansing, right? I'd known about this whole, this was in the constellation of my mind. But what it did was it actually gave me confidence to know that even though the book isn't written, since I had the first book in hand and it, I was able to find it somewhere inside, the other ones were there too. And I just had to do the work of going to get them. And so I had to ask myself, am I a professional writer or not? Because a professional writer can be expected to go inside and get those other books, right? And if I didn't think I was capable of that, I can't pitch that. Mm -hmm. But I knew I was capable of that. And every time I said, what would book four be? What would book five be? This cascade of ideas came in each, not the story, not the plot, but all the different anchor images that could be part of this broader pattern emerged completely. I said, yes, I definitely have. And I said, so I said, is there a sequel? Yes. Oh, not enough. Maybe it's, maybe it's three books. Maybe it's a trilogy. Not enough. Four books? That seems like a weird number. Mm -hmm. What about five books? Five seems like too many, but they're short. They're going to be around 120 pages each. Ooh. What's interesting about it is when I posted it, I got more comments um, about that picture of me signing a piece of paper, like comments, like actual interaction ah. from people than I have on an, any social media post in a long time, like 60 or 65 comments related Whoa. to right congratulations congratulations or what's this for or how's it which was interesting because when i post graphic novel announcements there isn't that kind of engagement and so i was trying to figure out what was made of the po like i was just saying to uh, my wife tara's like you know like people really this book thing and she's like, no, 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 read your own post in there. They're responding to how excited you are. Like, and my post was like, hooray, mm -hmm. it's a book book, right? She's like, you treat your graphic novels as your regular thing, and this is something new and exciting to you, and they're connecting with that. That's actually a uh, evidence that they actually care about the things you care about. And all of these people who've commented are people you've spoken to mostly in, your, in the real world. Don't be weirded out by this. It's not an indictment against graphic novels. It's them saying, hey, the part of you that you have on display that seems to be under control, you're taking a bit of a risk doing a thing that you haven't done before. And that's what they're responding to. So maybe the takeaway there is that's when social media works the best, is when you're a little bit vulnerable and you are willing to admit it. Sure. I think right? it also the photo of you signing the contract makes it real for people. I guess. People? It's, they don't. It's... Uh, 
It's a funny photo. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Ball said, for the first time ever, I looked like a real author. Cat's <laughs> uh, uh, throwing a little shade. That's fine, though. Um, so the book, yeah, he says he meant my jacket, but I don't, I don't think he did. I think he means that only books without pictures are real books. That's what I think he means. Uh, Automatic Age is a story about a perfect future that people don't get to live in. So in the 40s, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the pulps and the art from the pulps that prefigured the future that's coming, it was always this sparkling automatic world. The sidewalks would take you places, the cars would drive you places, the food would make itself, right? Little robot kitchens, all that stuff. The Jetsons. Would, exactly. Yeah. The Jetsons. Imagine the world of the Jetsons as if it came to pass and people live there. And then if that world, that automatic world realized in order to run in perfect clockwork, it just needed to get rid of the thing that slows it down, that the imperfection, which is humanity. And then it scrubs humanity out. Can I ask how it does it? Um, yeah, in a very systematic square by square or square mile by square mile way, it sends these, uh, the, so basically, without being too spoilery, there are these autovolts, these humanoid robots um, styled after those, they're clear bodied robots and you can see the inner workings like clockwork underneath and they're vaguely shaped like people because they're designed to go into human settlements, right? They show up a little at a time and just eradicate people. Do they shoot them or they... They shoot them, they stab them, they oh put God. them in lawnmowers, they do, oh. whatever, you know, they do whatever, is, whatever is the most efficient given the situation to get rid of everyone. And we don't get to see that. That's already happened. Okay. Right? The people in the story, the main characters of the story are a father and a son. And the reason the father has survived the Autovolt revolution is because he is a... Uh, ex-soldier and he has the lower half of his body is prosthetic and so without giving away too many like salient plot points his prosthetic body allows him to pass as an autovolt long enough when he meets them to either disable the robots there or take his son to safety it just gives him that little edge that other people did not have mm. so his disability uh, that the regular world looked at as being the thing holding him back becomes the thing that gave the robots pause also in destroying him. Hmm. Right? He didn't fit into their binary category of human or robot. So they paused to try and figure out what they should do. And in that pause, he has a moment. I imagine he has, if he's got like bionic legs, he's like half of a bionic man, right? He's got like superhuman running capabilities. Or no, no, it's just okay. like, right, because you wouldn't give... Yeah. Regular I people. I mean, you might. You know? And where does I it come from? Would. Okay, so if someone is going to ask, you didn't ask, but I can tell you. My father uh, has a prosthetic limb also. Oh, okay. Right? And so part of this is like me as a dad thinking about, you know, how the things you'd want for your own kids in a terrible world that might arrive. And then me thinking about the things that my own father did. And then when the whole thing sort of came about, it was quite accidental when... I had written myself into a corner, like the dad is cornered and the kid is there with him and the robot is like, identify yourself. And I had no idea what to do. I was like, I don't know how a person could get out of this. I guess this is going to be a super short story. <laughs> Maybe this is how it ends, right? And then I thought, well, okay, the robot's going to injure the dad right away. 
right? And he's going to sacrifice himself to save it. And then it became a leg injury. And then I immediately put myself in that position as a child. If this was my dad, well, if it was his one leg, he'd actually be fine. He wouldn't even hurt. Mm-hmm. He'd be broken, but it wouldn't even hurt. And so that might give you an edge. And then the whole thing kind of gelled from that. Cool. It's like taking those experiences from life and from your own wishes and then a robot apocalypse all mixed in there together. And the idea is that it's a sparkling, perfect world, like a desert. They can't touch it or interact with it. There's a sandwich shop that'll make them a sandwich. There's a place they can get a haircut. There's a perfect uh, automatic house that would keep them alive. But as soon as they start using the voltage, then the robots know that there's a human occupant and they're going to come and get you. Wow. So you can't touch it. What if you were in a perfect world, but you couldn't touch it? It was a computerized paradise where nothing could go wrong, but something did. My future is perfect and sparkling and everything works great. Because no humans. Because there's nobody there (laughs) to make it. Yeah. Um, With there's a few. And so it's a it's a young adult series meaning that I have to tone back the violence to implied. Okay. Right? Rather than... So the the work I'm doing uh, in the Once Lands books that we're working on, the violence is very much overt. Like, it's a horror story, and there's some body horror in it, and there's some, like, serious descriptions of some wet, gross messes. Right? Uh, this is the opposite of that. This is... Um, everything is already cleaned up by the time they find it. Or if somebody dies, I make it brief. I do a Hemingway death rather than a William Gibson death. I get it. Right? Yeah. So it's been really interesting to be thinking about a book without pictures being the driving force. Um, But now I am totally crippled in thinking of the cover design. Because in a graphic novel, I know I have lots of images that can represent a work and I'm working on the whole book for a long time before I settle on the cover. Now the only real color, full color image will be these covers. What should they be? What should they look like? I don't know. Do you start with that or end with that? I don't know. You would end with it usually. I, I don't know. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Have to wait and see. Have to wait and see. So that's, uh, that's to me, of interest because um, it... Even though I do a lot of prose writing, it's uh, um, more, I don't know. I almost want to say there's more at stake for me in these. I don't know why I say that, but it feels like that. I guess because I already know I can do comics well, and I've done enough prose to believe I can do prose, but to actually sit down and write five stories as a sustained you, and thing. I would imagine that you could probably combine these into a single volume at some point. In theory. Yeah. yeah. Like later down the road, you could, you could actually have yeah. a, a thicker, you know. One of the, like, the scope that surrounded the project was this idea that when I read all the Robert E. Howard Conans, oh, yeah. I read them completely out of order as slender paperbacks that I found at garage sales and in all these other places at bookstores or whatever. And you never knew which book came before which other book. Conan the Wanderer, Conan the Buccaneer. They're all standalone stories, right? And they stand alone within the world. It's the same character, right? But they stand alone in the world, and they are their own story. And the style of the story and the self-contained nature of it, the sort of bottle story of it, is all you needed to understand. So trying to figure out that... Uh, is to me the like most fun challenge is how can I make each story self-contained so that the stakes seem high 
but you know it's part of a series, so you, in the back of your head, you know that at least the main character is going to live, <laughs> right? Hopefully. So, yeah. Um, and I get to do all the stuff. I get to put in all the stuff that I think dads want to say in books to their sons or their daughters. I mean, I don't have daughters, so I can't speak to that. But a whole bunch of stuff that I'd want to say to my son in a crisis, right, I get to put into these books um, and then imagine what their responses would be and how I could handle it. And I don't think I'll handle it that well. Oh, there was just these are little knockoff Gundams. It's so cool. Yeah, there's a little toy, little toys, toys here, bag of toys from Greg's kids, and they're like little knockoff Gundams. These don't look super official, but they're close enough. Do you remember muscles? Yes, that's right. Okay, so for the dear listener who wants to know what toys Justin found, think of muscles. Those old toys from the 80s. Rubber, pink rubber guys yeah. that you would like pretend now to imagine wrestle. imagine Gundams in that same style and size. And that's what I found a little, at some anime show a while ago. And for a while I was putting them in the kids' lunches so they would like have their lunch and have a new mech to fight with. That's a fun thing to do. Yeah. Well, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Um, how you can package it, where you should stack it, and how you can take it to shows in suitcases that you borrowed from your uncle. Um, we're encouraging you to join the fight and make comics. Mm-hmm.